I remember going to see Nana and Papa when I was a kid. It seems like every time we visited their home, Pop was sitting in his den watching NASCAR when we arrived. I could never really get into it. He tried to get me to appreciate the sport, but the notion of cars simply circling the track for hours, it seemed monotonous at best. And in my worldview back then, it didn't count as a sport unless you were powering the vehicle yourself, like you do with a bicycle or something like that. Now, I know there's a lot of strategy and science involved in stock car racing, but I wasn't mentally in a space where I could appreciate any of that. I was little, I was a kid. To me, the only thing more boring than watching a race car was, well, I know this will be another sore spot, watching golf. Anyway, over time, I did learn a few things from Pop. For instance, I learned that the qualification rounds determine which cars line up in a better position from the start of the race. Beginning a race in two single file lines, it always seemed unfair to me, as that's not at all how we began foot races on the playground. I learned that the checkered flag means that you win, or that someone else did. And I discovered that caution flags mean to slow down, look around, and beware that something dangerous could be ahead. Now notice that last one. The caution flags tell us that we might face danger on the road ahead. The flag isn't the danger itself, nor is the flag a promise of danger. It's simply a warning. In effect, the caution flag says, hey, watch out, there's been an accident, there's a piece of debris on the track, or there's something else that might mess with your ride. In other words, it's a heads up. So that's what I want to do in this talk. The six caution flags I'll provide you, they weren't a guarantee of trouble, nor are they necessarily trouble themselves. Rather, they're meant to each say, hey, if and when you see, insert one of the flags that I reference, then take around and make sure that you maintain your ride. Makes sense? So let me give you six caution flags as you seek to walk in the area of your vocation, of your vocal calling, of walking in that unique path that the Lord has supernaturally outlined for you. Here they are. Let me give you the list of six, and then we'll talk through them individually. Number one, avoid seeking signs. Number two, beware of the open door and closed door theory. Number three, don't give God directions. Number four, let your feelings inform you, not command you. Number five, let's leave the God told me language out. Number six, relationship trumps, formulas test, and even books like my own, or even talks like this one. Okay, so let's hit them. Number one, avoid seeking signs. The call of Gideon is one of the most well-known examples of sign seeking in the Bible. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, greeting him as a man of valor, Judges 6.12. Most theologians agree that when we see the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, we meet the pre-incarnate Jesus. In the same way that Jesus calls forth the yet-to-be-seen greatness residing deep in Peter, so also does he speak courage into the unbrave version of the man who becomes a mighty warrior and judge. A few paragraphs into his story, we read that the Spirit clothed Gideon, a description that not only sounds remarkably similar to the way we envision the baptism of the Holy Spirit back in Talks 8, 9, and 10 of this series, but it also reminds us that God's Spirit can give prophets like Moses, artists and craftsmen like Bezalel, or even warriors like Gideon, Judges 6.34. 
per our working definition of spiritual gifts, these supernatural manifestations can be anything God wants to empower us to do. But Gideon isn't quite there yet. You might remember how the exchange unfolds. God definitively informs Gideon he'll be the human he uses to express his power through, but Gideon wants certainty for himself. This goes back to the notion that, as in the example of Peter, the Lord sees in us and calls for something that we often can't see ourselves. Give me a sign, Gideon says, and then he proposes one. Tonight, I'll set a fleece on the ground. Cover the fleece with dew, but leave the ground around it dry. If you do that, I'll know I'm hearing you correctly. Night comes and goes. At sunrise, Gideon checks the fleece. Though the ground nearby is dry, the fleece is drenched. He rings it out. He's still not sure, though. So he flips the script, literally. Tonight, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. Then I'll know for sure. That's in Judges 6, 36 through 40. God gives him the sign. Then Gideon goes on to lead Israel against the Midianite oppressors. His story shows us one thing is certain when you go looking for signs, though. They are never enough. In Acts 1, recall, the disciples decided to fill Judas's vacant position among the twelve. Peter made the proposal. The group of 120 who were gathered in the upper room offered two candidates, and then they cast lots, Acts 1.26. That's not an issue of luck, chance, or fairness. That was just the method historically used to select a priesthood as well as people who would be set aside for special tasks. After the baptism of the Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus no longer cast lots. Rather, the Holy Spirit simply speaks to them as we speak to our friends. Remember, the Lord tells Ananias to go minister to Paul. That's in Acts 9.10. Peter is given instruction to go to Cornelius' home. In Acts 10.13, the Lord tells the church which leaders he wants to send on a mission trip. In Acts 13.2, Jesus tells us clearly, My sheep know me, and they hear my voice. That's in John 2.27. We find that verse in the book of John, which oddly is organized around specific signs Jesus did, according to John 2.11. Yet signs are given to confirm faith, and remind us that we're walking the right path, not given to create faith. See John 20, 30, 31. So how should we view signs? Well, we submit them to the Lord. We don't avoid signs. Rather, we avoid elevating their importance above hearing the voice of the Father. That leads us to the second caution flag. Namely, some people consider the circumstances in which they find themselves to be a sign. So caution flag number two Beware of the open and closed, in quotation marks, doors. The Bible tells us that God called Abraham, telling him to go to a land I show you, Genesis 12.1. It's clear from the exchange that God promised to lead Abraham, Abraham's responsibility being to simply follow. Just a few verses into his story, we find a dilemma. Namely, a famine occurs in the very area in which Abraham and God reside. Abraham's solution? Head to Egypt, Genesis 12.10. They always have more than enough food. Not only does Egypt have plenty to eat, though, they also have unique forms of baggage. For instance, Abraham fears the Pharaoh will take Sarah as his own wife and kill him in order to do so. So he passes her as his sister. Sarah is promptly invited into the harem in Genesis 12.15. Abraham repeats this sin years later, Genesis 21, as does his second son, Isaac, Genesis 26, 6. 
In addition, Abraham and his wife Sarah returned from Egypt with a handmaiden for Sarah named Hagar, Genesis 16.1. When Sarah has trouble getting pregnant, she proposes an interesting solution to Abraham. Impregnate the servant and birth an heir through her. He consents, and the family dynamics take an interesting shift. The first son, Ishmael, becomes the patriarch of the Arab race. He and Isaac's descendants, the Jews, still argue today, thousands of years later, over who is the rightful heir of Abraham's land. Now, let's go back and ask a question. How or why did all of this happen? The short, simplistic answer? Circumstances. Or, to say it another way, open and closed doors. The famine created a no-win situation for Abraham, in his mind. That piece of land was a closed door, he thought. Oddly enough, Isaac faces the same situation in the same geographic area just a few decades later. There's another famine. <laughs> Notice what happens. First, the Lord boldly tells him, Do not do what your father did. Do not move your family to Egypt. Genesis 26.1 Second, we read in that year, as the famine persisted, Isaac sowed and reaped 100-fold, Genesis 26:12, An exponential result, that massive, that would be miraculous at any time. Remember, though, this occurred during a famine. No one else reaped the same result. In fact, the obvious way in which God blessed him during that season distinguished him from everyone else, causing them to notice that the Lord was clearly with him, according to Genesis 26:28. We can learn from the circumstances in which we find ourselves. God clearly communicates to us in them, but we should never be controlled by them. That said, evaluate a few examples that I've discussed. Uh, birthing an heir through a handmaiden was acceptable behavior in that culture. According to circumstances, that was an open door. Or in the previous talk, previous episode, I talked about Moses uh, slaying an Egyptian taskmaster in Exodus 2.12. As a prince of Egypt who sought to protect a slave, this was acceptable behavior. According to circumstances, that too was an open door, but Moses ended up fleeing for his life. Well, on the other hand, think about this. Defeating Goliath without armor and without a legitimate battle weapon was a closed door, yet David prevailed in 1 Samuel 17, 1 and following. The Red Sea was a closed door, yet Moses raised his staff and God made a way in Exodus 14, 10. The lion's den and the fiery furnace were both dead and closed doors, yet God delivered his people and slaughtered the enemy through both in Daniel 6, 1 following in Daniel 3, 8. Of course, Jesus' death on the cross and his burial in a borrowed tomb was the ultimate closed door. It was so shut, in fact, that Peter and the others went back to their old fishing trade, according to John 21.3. In Revelation, we read that God opens doors that no man can shut, and he closes doors that no man can open, Revelation 3.8. The doors aren't always open or closed when we first see them, though. And many times, the way he opens or shuts the door completely defies logic. That's why open and closed doors can't be the only factor in determining God's will for our lives. He certainly speaks through them, but our relationship with Him always trumps any formula we could create. And that leads us to our third caution flag. Number three, consider tests, formulas, and even manifestations, but rest in the relationship first and foremost. Well, in the book of 1 Kings, we meet the prophet Elijah. After slaughtering 400 prophets of Baal and calling down fire from heaven, he flees for his life when he hears Jezebel seeks to kill him. 
The Lord follows Elijah to Mount Horeb, where he's hiding. Incidentally, Horeb is another name for Sinai, which is about to prove incredibly insightful. God decides to make his presence known to the prophet, 1 Kings 19, 11 and following. We read that a strong wind blows through, powerful enough to shatter rocks, but we're told God wasn't in the wind. Then an earthquake rumbles through, and then fire and lightning. God is in none of it. Finally, a still whisper moves in. A voice comes with it which says, Elijah, what are you doing here? We're told God wasn't in anything else on that mountain. He wasn't in the wind like he was back when he used the wind to blow back the waters of the Red Sea so Israel would walk through, Exodus 14, 21. He wasn't in the quake or fire or lightning or thunder like we saw when Moses first ascended Mount Sinai, the same mountain in Exodus 19, 13. Though it would have been easy to lean back on those previous famous manifestations and say, hey, this is God. In this story, he revealed himself through the calm whisper. He revealed himself through relationship. Yes, past experiences and manifestations are important. They're part of our history with God. And tests and assessments and books are great resources too. They help us navigate current reality. But the primary focus is relationship. In fact, in Christianity, we uniquely believe that truth is embodied not in facts and figures, but in a person. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life in John 14, 6. That is, we've got to remember who leads the relationship, and that leads us to caution flag number four. Number four, directions, receive them, don't give them. And one of the most bizarre twists we see in Scripture, the children of Israel decide not to take the promised land. Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan, one from each tribe. See Numbers 13.2. The 12 returned with a favorable report about the land. Just like they were promised, it flows with milk and honey. Numbers 13.27. There was only one problem. From their perspective, it looked like a closed door. They didn't know about caution flag number two. Literal giants occupied the land. The inhabitants were so large that, according to 10 of the spies, we looked like grasshoppers compared to them. Numbers 13.33 The children of Israel wailed all night. They decided they should choose another leader to take them back to Egypt. They prepared to stone Moses and Aaron. And then the glory of the Lord fell and halted it all. After the Lord told them they'll wander for 40 more years and then die in the wilderness... Everyone except Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who thought they could take the land, that people decided to, now get this, rush a full speed assault right into those giants. Predictably, they get routed. Numbers 1439. Forty years later, Joshua sent, now catch the irony of this, two spies to scope the land. Joshua 2.1. They hid at Rahab's house of harlotry, where she told them a few things which proved insightful. First, the inhabitants of Jericho, the first city they were about to take, heard of Israel since the Red Sea opened for them. They knew Pharaoh and his army drowned. They heard about the other kings Israel defeated. In Rahab's words, the Lord has given you the land. The fear of you has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants melt away before you. Joshua 2.8 And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit of man because of you. Verse 11 of chapter 2 also. In other words, the giants had been afraid of them. 
Because Israel chose to inform God rather than entrust themselves to him, they never knew, though, not until it was too late for a whole generation of them. Now, that's clearly a negative example, an illustration as to why we need to obey God lest something bad happen. Let me highlight a positive example, though, because this works both ways. Jesus says that he only did what he saw the Father doing, John 5, 19. That is, he did nothing on his own. After Jesus ascended to his throne, Peter and John walked to the temple one day. It was the third hour of prayer, about 9 a.m. A beggar looked at the two of them, anticipating they might have something to offer. Silver and gold have I none, Peter said, but what I do have, I give you. Then, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, Acts 3.6. Here's where it gets interesting. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us this man was carried to the temple daily. This was just a few months after Jesus walked that same path, meaning Jesus very likely passed him multiple times. Why didn't Jesus do something? Well, it's because he didn't give the Father instructions. He took them. He only did what he saw the Father doing. When Peter and John ministered to the man in the Lord's timing, a full-blown revival exploded in the area. Overnight, once again, the church grew by thousands. See Acts 4.4. Well, let me give you caution flag number five. Number five is to encourage feedback from others, but do so by leaving the God told me language out. Here's my experience. Most people who are secure in their faith don't have to preface a lot of their statements with God told me. Further, they actually encourage feedback and even accept correction. They understand that sometimes we miss it, and at other times we hear only part of a message we need to hear. Leading statements like, the Lord said, tend to squash opinions as they serve as the ultimate ace card. If people disagree with you, they disagree with God, and who's going to do that? I love the way the leaders of the Jerusalem Council communicate their decision in Acts 15. At the time, the question of circumcision loomed forefront. Everyone wanted to know how Jewish new converts needed to be in order to profess Christianity. Specifically, they wanted to know if a Gentile man needed to get cut, the telltale sign which had been given to Abraham, Genesis 17.10. Yeah, I'm talking about circumcision. Well, the top leaders throughout all of Christendom convened in Jerusalem to discuss it. Though it seems trivial to us now, at stake was the doctrine of salvation and thousands of years of history. After much debate, the leaders determined that circumcision was, now get this, not required, that the law wasn't binding. Now, I love the words which James, Jesus' little brother, used to communicate their findings. He said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, Acts 15, 28. It seemed good? Really? Is that the best they could do? The brightest minds and men who walked with Jesus in the flesh and all they could come up with is a decision that they preface with, it seemed like we should. Well, here's what I see. Humility. The men at that council were confident enough to call lame people to walk, and they were bold enough to die as martyrs. Yet they were also gentle enough to acknowledge that they were, at the end of the day, human. They were new creations recreated in the image of their Savior who were simultaneously just navigating life and doing the best they could. That's a great tension for us to hold. Caution flag number six, the final one, is this. Let your feelings inform you, but not command you. In our culture, we often equate goosebumps and sentiment with the move of the Holy Spirit. 
our feelings often, wrongly, become the measure of what God does in a circumstance. And therein lies the problem. Moses didn't feel like going to redeem the children of Israel. In Exodus 3.10, he initially peppered the discussion with the burning bush with all the reasons why he shouldn't go. Samuel didn't feel like ordaining Saul as king. In fact, he set his own wayward sons in office as judges to take over for him in 1 Samuel 8.1. Jonah didn't feel like preaching in Nineveh, so he boarded a boat and fled in the opposite direction. When given a second chance to return to Nineveh and preach as he was commanded, he did. They repented, revival ensued, and Jonah found a shade tree and began pouting. The dysfunctional prophet confessed that he didn't want to preach to them because he knew the Lord was merciful and that he knew that he would remove judgment for them. See Jonah 4 2. Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. See Luke 22 42. According to Mark, he asked three times in order for that destiny to be removed using the same words over and over in Mark 14 39. That's persistence. The author of Hebrew tells us that even though Jesus endured the cross because of the joy he saw on the other side of the sacrifice, he actually despised the shame of it, Hebrews 12, 2. That's how he felt about it. Now, I believe our feelings are gifts given to us by God. They help us assess what's really happening in our hearts, and they assist us in navigating through this world. We want to hear what our feelings say, but we don't want to live controlled by them. Often, I hear people say, I feel... And then they equate those feelings with the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, for sure, God can speak to us through our feelings, but what we feel always needs to be measured in light of more. We need to assess those feelings in light of things like God's Word. Remember that concept of instructional obedience? That is, we need to lean into the things He's already said. And God's Spirit, that internal witness that we can hear, which often speaks in contrast to our feelings. Common sense, that is, a simple reflection and honest answer on the question, what is the wise thing to do? Circumstances, we don't want to be controlled by these either, but we do need to acknowledge that they do allow us to see where we actually are, and competent counsel, that is, listening to other trusted brothers and sisters in Christ who can both challenge and encourage us. We need to be brave enough to ask and answer each of these questions, even holding some of them in tension. Do you see? So we want to, and I'll just give you the six caution flags. And if you look in the show notes, I can just A, B, C, D, E, F these. Avoid seeking signs. Beware of open and closed doors. Consider tests and circumstances, but directions, receive them, don't give them. Encourage feedback. Feelings inform, not command. As we sign off, my prayer for you is, as it is with every episode, that the Lord would bless you, that He would keep you, that He'd be gracious to you, that He'd shine His face of favor. And I would remind you, as Jesus reminds you, that you are His sheep, that you know Him, and that you hear His voice. And may you stay close in relationship, and may you hear that voice behind you saying, hey, this right here is the way. Simply walk in this. Grace peace. Shalom.